So welcome. This is so great. Um, I think that we have a really wonderful lineup of poets today. Um, these three women are women that I have known through Marin Poetry Center for some years now. And although they may not necessarily have known one another, I think we've all kind of been in the same orbit. Um, and I think that the poems that we're going to hear today are probably going to be they're going to have a lot of connective tissue, right? A lot of what is going to be brought to you is uh, poetry about family and poetry about loss and poetry about kind of how, how we are surviving in a difficult world, um, which frankly, I believe that today is National, Men National Mental Health Awareness Day. So it's sort of appropriate um, given the difficult, difficult year and a half that we have all gotten through. So um, the first person I would like to introduce is Margaret Stowawi. And she, let's see, she recently edited a poetry anthology entitled Storms of the Island Sea, Poems of Alzheimer's and Dementia Caregiving, which will be coming out next year. Uh, she recently appeared on KQED with a perspective on caregiving that you can listen to on the KQED website, which I'm going to post uh, in the chat in just a minute. Um, and Margaret has won awards for her poems from Beyond Baroque, The Atlanta Review, Naugatuck River Review, among others. And her first book, Keeper of the Pond, which I have to tell you was wonderful, was published in 2017. Um, I'm going to, if anybody uh, needs help with the chat, just let me know. I am going to put the link to her, the KQED in there, and also her biography so you can read it, because I know it's hard to take everything all in at once. So here we go. There we go. Okay, so Margaret, um, I would love it if you could get started. I'm gonna unmute you now. Okay, can everybody hear me? Yes, good. I am so grateful for the invite to be reading with these two wonderful poets and to everybody who came. Thank you so much. So I am going to be reading caregiving poems today. From 2012 to 2018, I was my mother's caregiver. She had dementia and I wanted to keep her in her familiar settings and routine for as long as possible. This was hard because I had a full-time job, still do. And uh, anyway, let me begin with a doctor's appointment. This is called Advice from the Cardiologist. The doctor looks at his chart, then at my mother. It's not her heart per se, it's her blood vessels stiffening, ramping up tension. I think of a pressure gauge, the capillaries in her brain, a rampant running faucet, and then all those clots, like obstructions in a drain that can't unclog the sheer weight of her thoughts, how the stress compresses, suffocates, and none of it can go down, diminish. Mom always said, do not take medicine, never trust doctors. When you do, you die. Maybe that's true. I always loved her, her backbone, how she stood up, talked back, didn't count the cost, and now she's paying. And I love her audacity, even in poverty, her screw you stand right to the end, because the end is where this is going. And today's appointment is my doing. I'm bringing her to the plumber for a pointless consultation, as even the doctor knows. Doris, he said, you made it to 92, no help from me. So go ahead, do what you think. Drink, keep around, smoke. Even with dementia, she smirks at his joke. This comic discharge with outcomes to catch up with us soon. No, have already caught up. And 
Often when a family member or friend is experiencing cognitive decline, they're at tipping point when they can no longer care for themselves. And um, I think one of the first reactions, certainly one for me, was denial because the ramifications for the care receiver and the caregiver are enormous. A small footnote here, my mother always called the refrigerator an icebox because in the 20s and 30s when she grew up, that was refrigeration. Signs of her decline. One, just last month, you believed when she said, I'll get to it. But the pile of mail on her table, a growing droning wasp nest, late fees swarming. For her, calendars, checkbooks, now wispy shifting notions, cirrus clouds on a windy day. Regarding wasps, she was once told, ignore them, they will go away. Two, she said she has no use for meat, water, vegetables. In her refrigerator, always an icebox, drawers of exquisite decay, pungent pools of liquefied produce, bearded fruit, fuzzy bread. Only sugar is worthy of inquiry, dazzling as fireworks over a drab landscape. Three, under ideal conditions, dust will prosper, grow into elegant velvet across each surface. Her home, a sour rhapsody sung from a stale mouth. Underfoot, a stanza written in crumbs and grit. A memory of order erases dirt, enables her detente from housework. In the bathroom, dried excreta on the commode, evaporations of salt on the floor. Down the drain, a dirge gurgles. The truth is murky. Four, when picking her up at noon, just say, at the sun's brilliant rapture, because time's gone pale, silver fish quick, eluding capture. Naked, she sits, trapped as if stitched in a pocket. She tugs at the tangled knots between concepts. Wastebasket is too thicket as thought is too. She parses her choices. Finally, a key turns, the door opens. It is you, her youngest, but no longer young. The room overcast, clouds form between you. You said you'd be down in a few minutes because what else can you say to your naked mother? Five, pills are like pins that once swallowed lead to punctured beliefs. How the body, not inviolate, deteriorates. Blood floods, retreats, takes down districts in the brain. Power grids dim, one block at a time. Prescriptions lined up Monday to Sunday, forgotten in their plastic coffins. Six, if it isn't seen, smelled, does it exist? For her, the spots on her clothes, just a matter of perception. At the grocery store, in ratty pajamas, pushing her walker down aisles, searching for past, present, future. She once found advice in magazines, ways to fix the tenses, flabby disappointments, uncombed goals. Later, the store manager will explain how she blacked out and when she came to, insisted there was no one to call. Seven, all around her, family photos, like a shrine of holy cards, faces shining through borders of black and white memory. Events of mourning, as lost as her hearing aid, forgotten as her eyeglasses, 
she sits in her chair, weeps for all those beautiful moments from the past, more real than those who visit her still, more real than you. Um, after about five years of keeping my mother in her home, she started to have debilitating falls. And the time in the hospitals and skilled nursing facilities confused her to the point where she became agitated and even violent. Um, she also had developed a dangerous stomach infection and that confused her even more. So her doctor finally recommended her for hospice and through hospice, she could get care 24 seven in a skilled nursing facility. But first we'd have to stabilize her because if she exhibited signs of violence, which she was doing, they probably would not accept her. So I was given an array of antipsychotics and anxiety medications. We weren't sure how she would react to them or what the proper dosage would be. I had to administer these drugs. So uh, I wrote this poem, Drugging My Mother. My hands shook when I took the bag of drugs delivered that night. The moon was red. My mother's gut clenched. Bread and infection dispersed invasive seeds of rage. In her brain, a chainsaw shredded reason to ribbons, incited limbs to insurrection. Hospice gave clear directions. Don't worry about tomorrow, today. But that day, electrons in her head split atomic bonds of mother-daughter. I could hide knives, scissors, but not my fear, which she could smell clearly. Lorezepam, Seroqual, Haloperidol. I ferried the dark waters of my mother, tossed futile chemicals into her currents. Because my mother was on a limited income, it was difficult to get her the care that she needed. And I, previous to all of this, I ignorantly thought that there would be resources and programs and, and that all I had to do was apply and help would be on the way. So this next poem is called The Plan. I thought I had a plan, one so simple it could fold into a paper hat. I would give it to my mother, a reminder to remember. The folds would hold what she forgot, a guide for poor elderly female. If I called, reminded her to take medications, my words would not fall in the She wouldn't hang up and forget. Social workers, programs, nonprofits, I filled out the forms, the facts so worn, the creases gave out so little money. I wore her problems a hat too big for my head. Neighbors, building management said, she's not safe, what will you do about that? To keep her safe, I needed a fold to hold her until 5 p.m., then hurry after work to turn off the faucet, the stove. Her doctor would know how to straighten the corrugations, erase the rages, agonies, there would be no way my mother's mind would fray, scatter, would not wear her demons like parchment scribed with curses. The administrator said, we're evicting your mother. The police are here now. In the plan, spells to conjure a specialized, a bed in a specialized hospital. Nurses would offer paper cups of pills that she'd swallow willingly awaken her from torment. My mother wept, why are you doing this to me? There would be no schmaltzy wallpaper, no institutional chicken with broccoli, no stink of piss trapped in the floor. Her last days would hold no misery. She'd flutter her eyes, depart gracefully as a paper plane on the breeze, her hat flying on the wind far, far away.
This is my final poem called Last Instructions. When she died, my head was on her bed, slipped right past me, her shell body with fractured hip, a chrysalis tossed behind as she crossed over. The nurse said, they wait for a space in your coming and going to release what life is left. So when my head dropped, sleep deprived, her exit opened wide. She lived in a nursing home, asked to return to her apartment from where I moved her months before. Yes, of course you'll go back. She asked, would she die in this place? You're not dying. Through the months, I lied as many times as she asked and forgot, asked and forgot. I got good at lying, but not too good. She was my mother after all. In the end, was she Catholic or Buddhist? Should I have worried about purgatory or the bardo? I know he is the last thing to go. So I leaned forward, whispered, leave this place. Don't stop for anything. We'll be okay. Lie. Go. Margaret, thank you. Difficult, perhaps, <laughs> material, but I, I know Sean has balanced this reading to, um, you know, move the poetry reading in, in a good direction. you again. Margaret, thank you so much. That was just really beautiful. It's, it's, I know it's really hard to write about caregiving for someone who, who is struggling and not succeeding. And I just, I really take my hat off to you. I've been there, not exactly where you've been, but I've been caretaker for a couple of people. And it is incredible that you can write so beautifully and so sensitively around such a difficult subject. So my sincere gratitude for sharing that with us today. Um, so I'd like to turn now to Kathy Jordan, uh, who, as I mentioned before, was actually a reader in the very first Second Sunday reading, and uh, her poems appear in The Sun, Chautauqua, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, Chautauqua, Chautauqua, I don't know, Comstock Review, New Ohio Review, and the Atlanta Review, among others. Um, she's a recipient of the San Miguel de Allende Prize for Poetry and the Sydney Lanier Poetry Award. Um, her poem, My Late Breast, which includes an interview by the magazine, was selected by The Sun as one of 10 items for their 2021 summer reading list. And I think this, I've personally seen that poem going around Twitter, Facebook, you name it. It's pretty, it's got a lot of traction. Um, so yeah, pretty impressive. <laughs> um, Catherine loves to hike the trails and she listens for birdsong to translate to poems. And I'm gonna share her bio and um, URL for her website in the messages for everybody. So you can do research on your own as well. There you are. And I'm going to unmute you, Kathy. Thank you so much, Sean. And um, Margaret, that was an incredible reading. I just really bowed down before you here because that had to be just amazing. I just, the imagery and everything, I felt it so much. I also want to thank Barb for setting us on this long journey uh, in 2017, where we had a beautiful hub of poetry and family and friends and art and music at Brit Marie's where this all began. So I just came back from um, sabbatical, I guess you could call it a month um, in Washington on the Northern edge of the Olympic Peninsula uh, where the Salish Sea surges through the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And it was such an astounding, um, restorative experience and it was good for poems, good for my body and spirit. And I would love to share a few of those poems with you. Um, the first one's called Kingfisher. The Kingfisher flew into the glass door at the edge of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Water, cloud, mountain, 
spreading far around. Yet the pain that seemed clear was not. Black and white feathers, dark mohawk, feet and wings tucked tidily beneath. She was alone. Two white plumes of down and a small smudge marked the end of his glorious kingfisherness. How many eons did one thread of life persist to create the perfect pointed bill of such a bird? A year ago today, a brother died in his RV. Outside, full dark, fire smoke occluding light. No one held his hand, no sister, no friend. No one came after to admire his feathers. The county hauled his old truck away, torched the door and cut him out, notifying next of kin after seven months time. The gulls arrive winging in from an island in another land where a lighthouse winks the tides just under the surface of the water. A seal glides, small ridge of wave rolling behind her eyes. Hunting in the quiet, she takes a breath, dives. This next poem has uh, an epigraph by John O'Donohue, the Irish mystic and poet. You can spend years lost in the wilderness of your own mechanical spiritual programs. The poem is called Alone. At certain times of day, the glaucous winged gulls throng the rocky coast. Here and there, a white glare of wing, mostly at the falling sun's low light time. The birds seem to have a certain place in mind as they flap hard against the wind by the thousands. When the tide pulls the salt blanket off the land, the gulls return to walk in circles, individuals almost, pecking at tiny crustaceans foundering in the eelgrass. Then, at the mercy of the moon, the Salish Sea rushes back in like a child who can't leave home. But the solitary gull nestled comfortably upon the lone piling in the lagoon across the road. How does she renounce the flock crying at the shore? What disposition or spirit calls a single creature from the raucous cloud, crowd, the lofty host of would-be angels. As it says in my bio, I'm all about birds. <laughs> so it's another bird poem. It's called Wild to Live and it starts with another epigraph. This one by uh, uh, another Irish mystic and poet, David White. There's a tension between what life asks of us and what we ask of life. They might have call for blame, but I did all I could by my children. Now it's a question of what will come unbidden, like that meteor around the bend, like the shiny sardine in the cormorant's bill, flapping wild to live, then tossed, glittering silver, still fish, becoming cormorant on the way down. Walking in fresh dawn, a possum sprawled by the road, mouth wide, tiny teeth exposed, palm open and spread in a gesture I can't help but name prayer. A hundred yards off, a bald eagle on a branch, hushed as stone, her gaze taking in every creature hidden in the pond and grass. She makes her decision, swoops silent 
over the lowland. <sighs> that was for my daughter who just had to get everything together and move to LA in a week. And all the things that I sit around thinking about. <laughs> just... This next one is called Gather. And it too starts with a, an epigraph. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted. He helps those whose spirit is crushed. Though my father and mother forsake me, Yahweh will gather me up. After reading what my father had etched on my brother's grave, it was hard not to remember again and in great detail the many times my nest mate was cast out of the nest. To wonder why he and not me endured the brunt of our parents' grief again and again. And if I'm honest, not to feel sorrow once more for the follow through of every blow which unfailing found its way to me. What is destiny? Time, the avenger, swooping from his perch, three wing beats behind the hapless gull, flapping toward the still ignorant flock, walking in circles on the mud flats until sensing danger, they rise crying as one, thousands of them into the sky as the loner enters the throng and disappears. Later, I watched the bald eagle perched in distant juniper, white head, yellow beak and talons, wings spread wide like the velvet cape of a lord being groomed by sunlight. But when the eyes of the eagle looked straight at me and I felt them pierce me through, I wanted to run. Whether toward it or away, I wasn't certain. I want to be gathered, but I also want more time to learn not to consider all that might have been. Tuning fork. Because the gulls didn't wake me with their cries, I could drift languid in the sea of dreams. No fisherman to pull hand over hand, shaking the nets, heaving me to deck where I must learn to breathe. In that other world, I tread water with my girl far from any shore or thought of shore. When I lose a comb, my dolphin daughter swims to snatch it, just as my tuning fork, which I never thought of as heavy, begins to sink. I recall all the times I whacked it against my knee, its A440 pitch ringing as I turned and tuned the peg, loosening or tightening the A string. Waves collide and wobble, except when their cycles align, making a single tone. I took, I take a breath and dropping under find two manta rays sailing through a green plankton sheen. One ray flaps toward me, touches its sensitive sharp nose to my forehead. I want to stay, to think on what the message might mean. But my eyes open to a sunrise blazing crimson over purple-blue cascades, flaring across straight and sky. I fling open the door, trying to catch the sight with my phone, reel in sounds unseen, even as a Faint tone sounds. The message is now, not only in dreams. That was a revelation for me. I always look for my dreams for the penultimate meaning and somehow is starting to really get to me that what I see is also equally 
meaningful and full of messages. But here's a quick poem about something we're not going to see anymore. As we know that many of us know that uh, we're living through the what we, what's being called the sixth great extinction. Um, last week, the scientific community declared 23 more species extinct. So this poem is very short, it's called Extinction. Dear ivory-billed woodpecker, flared red crest, white streaked neck, you're all washed up. Your pterodactylian elegance, gone. Now no bug will tremble before your sharp bill, pale dart, knocking at bark with will to survive, as is only fair. If only you could fly, arrow in the pines, away from these hot forests, far from what we've done. Okay, I have one more poem and it's uplifting, <laughs> but it's a bird poem. Okay, big surprise. It's called Attractive Nuisance. Um, Back when my son was a young teen, about 12, he wanted to build a skate ramp and box in our driveway. And our lawyer friend said, you have to get all the parents to sign a release because this is an attractive nuisance and people could get hurt on it. And people could be walking by and you'll have to lock it up. So people walking by won't be drawn in and you'll be sued. So this poem is called Attractive Nuisance. After the kids left home, I tore out the lawn. I wanted a fountain at the heart of, a of my garden that would nurture me, now free of my roles as choir teacher, mother, laundry technician. I wanted a fountain no bird would be caught dead on by the cat, a non-attractive nuisance. A globe fountain would be perfect, evoking a prayerful zen as I sat and wrote my poems. The cement orb bled water from pole to pole. Birds couldn't land, though they tried swooping at it from all angles. But one day I found a hummingbird plastered to the orb, wings fanned out, gripping the concrete equator with all its might. The next day, the same bird was there enjoying a bath in the burbling water. By summer, the Hummers owned the place, flummoxing the cat who hid in the bunch grass, plodding. Come fall, ginkgo tree, all gold. The chickadees, titmice, golden crowned sparrows, and a single robin all perched in the tree, waiting turns at the globe. This morning, as I'm reading of the sixth great extinction, there they are, five bush tits lined up at the crest of the fountain, like children posing for the Sears family portrait. No one falls off the ball because I've cleaned all the black lime off. The birds seem to know the cat's gone away as they splash and sip. I put out sunflower seeds, fill their water, and when I sit at my piano, they arrive ready to sing. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy. That, that was just lovely. You know, there is a book uh, by Anne Lamott, which is actually a sort of um, a writing instruction manual, if, if you will, called Bird by Bird. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, had of course had to think of that because as we are listening to these poems I'm thinking all of your birds one by one poem by poem poem are sort of teaching us how to see and how to understand your like your view of what's important in the world and I just thought that was so beautiful so thank, thank you so much thank you so much very kind very beautiful to be reading these poems and being here thank you thank you all right, so we are up to our final poet, another Catherine. This is Catherine Shea. Um, Catherine is the author of the full-length poetry collection, Genealogy Lesson for the Laity. Her chapbooks include Backpack Full of Leaves, Secrets Hidden in a Pear Tree, It's Raining Lullabies, and Snap Bean. Catherine's poetry has been nominated for the Best of the Net, and she's also been shortlisted or selected for a variety of poetry prizes, including a merit finalist 
for the Atlanta Review 2013 International Poetry Competition. In 2004, she received the Marjorie J. Wilson Award for Poetry Judged by None Other Than Charles Simic. And her poems have uh, appeared in anthologies and in many journals, including Poet Lore, The New Orleans Review, Tar River Poetry, Gargoyle, Tinderbox, and elsewhere. And in case that wasn't enough, she also served as the editor for the annual Marin Poetry Center Anthology um, and just recently uh, helped me with it this past year. So thank you so much. I'm very excited to listen to your poems. And uh, if I can find the unmute button, we'll be able to do that. So welcome, Kathy. Unmute. There we go. <laughs> Thank you so much. And again, it's just wonderful to be here and be and see everybody. And I love Barb. And I'm so glad that Sean is taking over the second Sunday series because this is just wonderful. And I can't wait till we can all meet again in person because I really miss those times. So I'm going to start out with, um, you know, I've got, I'm reading poems basically from some of these books that we just mentioned and a couple of new ones. Um, Months of Sunday's Laundry. This is a, um, an epilogue. His work done, God blessed the Sabbath, sanctified it, a respite from the reign of chores. Emperor Constantine decreed Sunday the official rest day. Anonymous. I'll do just one load, a mother finally said. Miraculously, Sunday came wash day, every Sunday laundry. Spinning cycles shook foundations. Rinse cycles rid garments of detergents and evil surfactants. The lint trap, dryers hotter than Phoenix in August. The hanging of unmentionables, the folding of tank tops and briefs, the orphaning of socks. The whole world washed and dried at once. Pressers of gilt altars. The ironing of it all. Brownouts. Rolling blackouts. Negative ions. A huge excess. Lightning a vast sheet. Bang. Trillions of meteorites. Stains upon Earth's vanished sky. The unknowable cleanliness. And I have to admit, I have uh, I have an extinction poem too. <laughs> I think it's really on our minds. A lot of people, or people our age and persuasion anyway. Good enough. Drive out past the misplaced rice patties that love autumn burns and think they're in China. Past the slough where carps cruise, their own rendition of Asia, except those jet skis obscure their vision. Go beyond the longest finger of Delta, flipping the bird at the hazy sky, particulate in the dawn of another blazing day. There's a stall at the local flea market which you won't find on a map of this shutdown town whose name nobody remembers. It's not that place where they sell copycat Pradas, LVs, and Kate Spades. People here don't know fancy labels, would trash them anyway. Behind that corroded suburban, see all the folding tables? straining under salty red rocks from Mars, jars of spilled crude from Exxon Valdez mixed with Captain Hazelwood's farewell Yukon Jack. There are the bones preserved in lava of Harry R. Truman, eternal proprietor of Mount St. Helens Lodge, alongside wholesale ash from his wife, Fair Lewitt. You'll find depleted uranium sealed in tiny canisters from Farallon Islands, resting by urns of water from the Mississippi Cancer Corridor, and vials of rust from nails 
once bloodied with stigmata from Calvary, mostly of crucified petty thieves. You'll need to compete with the crowds crushed around signs painted sloppily, extirpated families, extinct species to see all the miracles. The lined pocketbook, Lampsilis binomonata, by no means a walnut clam. The passenger pigeon with its own passenger mite, legendary for unwittingly feeding the poor and indentured. And a small fish named after a slave boat, the Amistad Gambusha, known only to occur in good enough spring, pronounced good enough, a tributary buried under sludge, near, near the Rio Grande. All these creatures on the verge of rebirth. <laughs> and uh, I think I'll switch to a couple, or maybe one poem anyway, from, yes, from It's Raining Lullabies. Benadryl destroyed my brain. Balloons bump against each other where thoughts should be, dozy as a cat napping on a rug. I trace words over and over in tones to make a palimpsest. My tangerine calm hammers the xylophone into silence. The clang frightens my fins and the hyena doesn't get the joke. I don't sneeze anymore. I never knew sleep could be so deep like the old saw and dreams could be rank with but chaste. Huzzah, no threat of addiction, just a clean clock free of crucial drivel. And that was a period when I had insomnia and I thought, oh, Benadryl's great. And then I realized you could really, you know, <laughs> better watch out because um, now they're saying it can cause dementia or something. So anyway, enough of the Benadryl. Um, <laughs> drawing project. If you could be a silhouette, a fickle stranger, a lonely outline of yourself, a conversation the pencil has with the thin lines of your shape, You've been taught to bless your body as the soul's vessel. Recite in Latin without knowing the meaning of the chants. Is your life like the married couple fighting over directions to the party? The map is in her lap and he refuses to stop and look at it. You drive on and on. It gets dark. You run out of gas. And your family and friends are so sorry you missed such a good time. <laughs> I think I'll read one from um, Backpack Full of Weeds. <laughs> this is um, pretty much in honor of my, um, my brother-in-law who passed away this year. And unfortunately, he, he did pass away from COVID. And he was in a uh, veteran's home. Eventually he got there. Okay. Where stars go dim. Waiting lists for veterans homes. Not for him. No matter how much his brothers worry. He'll drive into a ditch. Or crash head on into an innocent carload. Cooped up in some cell of a room in Chula Vista with curmudgeons blathering on about the past and grandkids who don't visit, last thing he needs. His neck stiff as if welded in place, he sits at the helm of his 79 Ford Econoline, the powder blue van fitted with solar and air, perfect for Burning Man, he's never planning to attend, 
He can't give it up. Even though the engine seizes, shocks are shot, retrofitted with third-party aftermarket parts, his home not away from home, social security and a small pension from years teaching business law ebb and flow with the stock market, keep him afloat. Final destination, Borrego Springs via Walmart parking lots, seeking endless night sky with its glow of galaxy light, his one good eye cataract clouded. And I'm gonna read some uh, poems from Genealogy Lesson for the Laity. That's my, that came out a year ago, right of course in the throes of the pandemic and made it impossible to have a book launch. And <laughs> you know, it's just the way it goes. All of us have been affected by this so tremendously. Family tree, a royal reach of shoal beyond the gate the surge, descent, and resurrection of orphan timber. The tide reverses, fosters erosion of the cliffs, shifts the silt of the ocean floor and beach. My family tree floats out there, part of so much flotsam, branches sheared off in the waves. I was born 20 miles from this grave of shipwrecks where gulls eye fertile tide pools from the rocks. The acorn that grows from earth to heaven is a story told a different way for each new life. Family tree in shadow and fog. What it shows is always the same. Family photos and boxes. Stand to one side. No, come closer. The scenes in albums are serene. Old tree, made up of missing answers. I shall never put you together in one piece. Your testaments lost in fire and flood, war and want. And here's one that's meant to be a little more humorous. <laughs> If you all remember um, Gary Larson, he's one of my favorite, absolute favorites. I have a collection of um, Larson mugs and uh, I just love him. He's, you never can find anything anymore now. Dear Larson, do you remember your cartoon with the two bucks in the forest? Of course you do. One has a target with a bullseye on its back, on its chest. <laughs> Bummer of a birthmark, Hal, the other buck says. I gave my father this coffee cup for Christmas a long time ago. He laughed and laughed. His fishing and hunting, bu hunting buddy, Adrian, roared too. On his visits back then, aluminum boat with Evinrude outboards strapped to the top of his F-150's camper shell. Abe brought grocery bags full of cheese puffs, jerky, peanuts, and pop, not to mention fifths of beam and plenty of ice. My dad supplied the cribbage board, decks of cards, and marbled beef to throw on the coals, if weather permitted, if not on the iron skillet. I'm recalling when I bought that gift at Target, reading every comic on every mug for what seemed like an eternity, howling until a torrent of tears ran my mascara. I swear, a kid in red vest came up and said, bummer lady, did you lose something? <laughs> Watching the clock here to make sure we don't go over. Okay, this might be the, the last poem. 1.9 cars per every 1.8 people. 
The news triumphantly blares. Cars have finally overtaken population. The vehicles I've owned outright or shared jointly with boyfriends and husbands constitute a politically incorrect, unpatriotic assemblage. There was the Volkswagen, common folks buggy from post-post-war that rolled, didn't maim, let me climb out through its crunched sunroof. Somehow, I'm still here. There were the Saabs, 99 and Turbo, from Sweden. One freewheeling precursor of automatic, the other fuel-injected ice-grabbing. The 99, my bridal carriage to second marriage, both sickened at high altitudes where we happen to live. Peugeot's, too, from France, with their stinky fuel and backward engines, poor kids strapped in, hauled frantically in search of diesel. Chief Cherokee, one Native American that snuck in, this model's name a slur, after a few years of bad mileage, we paid a hitman to send Chief to the Great Boneyard. The Japanese contingent, Mitsubishi, Toyota, Subaru, which could fast 20,000 miles between oil changes, which were pronounced totaled by insurance. Scoffing at this prognosis, one was salvaged. BMW. Post-Berlin Wall, which my husband gave me after he had his way with it, arrested me on Highway 17 at the canyon's edge when I ricocheted off the divider. So glad it was there. Our fractured freeways. The empty carpool lane except, expects me to try not to drive alone. And I think I'll end there so that we don't run overtime. <laughs> but I just am so thankful to see everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Applause for everybody. <laughs> oh, thank you. That was just delightful. I felt like, honestly, coming through all of the small details of, you know, the brand names of the cars and the specific, you know, it just, it was so interesting to see how the tiny details of the things that you observe are really grounding our experience of sort of much bigger and deeper meaning in these poems. And I, I wanted to thank you so much for bringing them to us. It was just such a lovely reading. Um, and so we're at the end and I, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank Margaret and Kathy and Catherine for joining us. I want to thank all of you for coming to watch. Um, and I want to thank Marin Poetry Center for letting us borrow this Zoom room. This is not actually uh, a Marin Poetry Center production. This is just all started by Barb uh, and coming on to me now. Um, and if you want to come back, we will be back next month. Let's see, uh, it's November 14th at three o'clock, same fat channel. <laughs> and um, in November, we're going to have Judy Juanita and Charita McHale, who are um, fascinatingly both sort of retired uh, former Black Panthers. So it's, it, I anticipate a very interesting reading, lots of fun. Um, and so please feel free to visit our website. And if you know anyone who is a poet and who wants to read, um, get in touch, send them my way. So thank you all again. And um, hit me up with any questions on email. I'm at seankillingsworth at gmail.com. Thank you so much and have a great Sunday. Bye-bye now.